Thank you, Monty. Some of the folks here had a heart attack. They thought both of us are going to preach at the same time because I don't enunciate sometimes. Some of you thought Monty's going to be my interpreter. So I love to hear what God is doing through Operation Christmas Child, and I love to hear what God is doing in the life of, of us uh, how he's using us as a church to reach the world, how he's at work in uh, Delaney. God, I love your story, man. Uh, great stuff there. And here's the deal. Once everybody hears that gospel, Jesus is going to return. So big picture, that's the plan. You can go home now, okay? <laughs> Not really. We have some work to do this morning. We have a somber and a serious passage. So turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews Chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Hebrews, Hebrews 3, 7 through 19. Uh, as we know, the human heart is an amazing organ, is it not? It is the size of a fist. It weighs less than one pound. It beats 115,000 beats a day. It pumps 2,000 gallons of blood through its own plumbing system. It has a built-in electrical system, and the blood vessels of that plumbing system, if stretched out, would be 60,000 miles long. And then it supplies oxygen and removes carbon dioxide with every single beat. Now, I've just given you enough evidence to believe in God if you do not. We know this too. If your heart ain't good, you ain't good. If your heart's in bad shape physically, you're in bad shape. The writer Hebrews in some ways this morning in our passage, Hebrews 3, 7 through 19, speaks to both his original audience and to us about our spiritual hearts. And he does so because spiritual heart problems are, he, as he calls it, hard hearts or soul killers. Hard hearts, he says, come from a deceived heart. And deceived hearts will cause you to fall away from the living God. But Hebrews ain't the only writer that speaks of our hard hearts or our spiritual hearts, our diseased hearts, our sick hearts. It's actually a huge theme throughout the Bible, starting in Genesis going forward. Because our hearts are deceived, here's what happens when we read passages about our sick diseased, deceitful, hard hearts, we typically read them as, as a people of Teflon. They bounce off of us, and then we automatically think about all the people they're speaking of. If you catch yourself doing that, you're in danger. Monty last week touched on the depravity of our hearts, but he did such in such a nice way. I'm going to take another swing at it this morning. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 20 through 23, that which proceeds out of the man, which is what defiles the man. 
for from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, the hearts of all people are full and evil, and there is madness, madness, he says, in the hearts during their lives, then they die. And then the haymaker, maybe the most familiar, is Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And yet our world tells us, just follow your If you really want to do a study of it, go and read Romans chapter 1 through 7. It's Paul's dissertation, if you would, to make an argument that your heart is sick and sinful, therefore you are too. There's a theological word we use, total depravity. It's defined like this. There's no human faculty left untouched by sin. The mind as well as the emotions and the appetites is biased against God. It is our innate sinfulness that brings about what I would say this distortion, if you would, this blindness And as our text will say, this deceitfulness about our own spiritual state. And ultimately, it speaks to our need to draw near to God in Christ, as the writer of Hebrews has been asking us to do. And so before I read the text, I ask you a simple question. Do you believe that you are sinful like the scripture says you are? That that's who you are at your core? If you do then you got a chance. If you don't, you're deceived. Let me read for us this morning, starting with verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another day after day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Underline that word unbelief, please, this morning. So as we transition here to our text, 
This text, Hebrews 7, or Hebrews 3, 7 through 19, is the second warning passage. We told you in our introduction that Hebrews has five warning passages. The first one was Hebrews 2, 1 through 9, and its big picture theme was drifting. Our second warning passage this morning, the big theme is deceitfulness of a hard heart or danger of a hard heart caused by deception. Now, I want to remind us a little bit. We are dealing with Jewish Christians. They are under intense persecution. Everything is happening to them except they are not at this point being killed. They are losing their jobs. They're losing standing in their community. They are torn between their life of this long, beautiful heritage as God's people. They're, they're, they're torn between their religious culture, their family's rejection, and between this, this, this new allegiance, if you would, of coming to faith in Christ, this new experience, if you would, the great salvation, as the writer of Hebrews says. So, at first, we know they held up beautifully, but the longer it went on, the more intense it got, they are beginning to hit eject. They are beginning to waver. They are tempted to go away from Christ and back to this old religious sacrificial system. They want to go back to what they know best. And the writer of Hebrews is saying to us, no, no. <laughs> And to do that, he's using the Israelites who got taken out of Egypt in slavery who immediately wanted to go where? Back to Egypt. So let's take a little bit of a history lesson, if you would, to go back and look at that history of Israel, the history of their hard hearts. So the writer of Hebrews is <clears throat> using a very familiar part of Israel's history in verses 7 and 11. Verses 7 and 11 is actually quoted from Psalms 95. It's a time of history that happened 400 years before Psalms 95 was written. So it happened back in the Exodus, okay, Numbers and Exodus. And then the psalmist wrote in Psalm 95 in his generation, warning his generation not to allow it to happen. And now the Hebrew, writer of Hebrews, does it again to warn them and eventually us, don't be like your kinfolk. So they're recounting Israel's 40-year wilderness journey where there were 2 million slaves in Egypt and God used, remember, the 10 plagues to get Pharaoh's attention. Moses goes to Pharaoh. He says, Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh looked at him and said, no way, Jose. That's Hebrew. Okay, you can mark that down. <laughs> Just read the book of Exodus. God says, you will know that I, Pharaoh, am the Lord God. And what does he do? He sends 10 plagues. He turns the Nile River into blood and everything died. And the text tells us that it stunk. Millions of frogs. Grab hoppers as, as many that you couldn't even see the ground. And he goes with these 10 plagues and the turning point was the death of every firstborn son of the Egyptians. 
And God's people, the Israelites' firstborn son did not die because they took blood and put it over the doorpost of their homes and the angel of death passed over them. Everybody with me? Okay. Now, here's what's ironic. If you read Exodus chapter 7 through 11, it says the reason Pharaoh did not believe God is because he had a hard heart. In his mind, he was God. That's called deception. And then we know God brought his people through the Red Sea. And as the Egyptian soldiers passed through, coming, they changed their mind. Pharaoh said, you know, all our workers are gone. So I've changed my mind. I'm actually going to go kill the Israelites. They get drowned. Right in front of the Israelite people, God saved them again. And then we know he led them by the day by a cloud, by the night by fire. He gave them bread and water and quail, a delicacy. He made their shoes not wear out. He gave them a place to worship in the traveling tabernacle. He gave them the leadership of Moses, which was a foreshadowing of of the leadership of the Lord Jesus himself. He gave them each other, this community. And then finally, he gave them the Ten Commandments, a moral guide of how to follow him well and to be his people. He provided for them physically and relationally and spiritually and every need they had was taken care of. Plus, he he had taken them out of slavery. But the text tells us they did not believe. Tangible grace and mercy. And I want you to know this is a confession. When I first came to Christ and began to read this, I thought the Israelites are absolutely stupid. Anybody else read it like that? And then as I've been on my own journey, coming out of slavery and walking this journey with God, I have realized I am just like the Israelites. It is humbling. And that's how we read the Bible. And that's how God's grace and mercy overwhelms us. So in light of that, let us diagnose what is a hard heart, verses 7 through 11. The writer of Hebrews uses Psalm 95 in some ways as a commentary on the rebellion of God's people that is specifically talked about in Numbers 14 and Exodus 17. In order to get them, as I mentioned a while ago, don't be like your kinfolk. Now, if your family is anything like my family, it has been said in private. You know Uncle Joe and Aunt Sally and Cousin Jim? Don't be like them. They're crazy as a cricket and a what? Hubcap. That's what he's saying here in some ways. The writer of Hebrews. God brought his people through the Red Sea. He drowned. No, I'm sorry. I was about to say it again. Don't be like your kinfolk, or you will experience the same thing they experienced, which was what? Verse 11 tells us, they shall not enter my rest, which was the promised land. Verse 19 tells us, so we see that they were unable to enter because of what? Unbelief. 
Now, the rebellion that the writer of Hebrews, as he quotes Psalm 95, talks about here is from the events at Kadesh Barnea, when Moses sent 12 spies into the promised land, and 10 of the 12 spies came back with a bad report. And the report was this. It's a beautiful land of milk and honey, but there's some big dudes there. They all play in the NFL. And immediately the people responded, God, what are you trying to do? You're trying to get us killed? They grumbled, complained, murmured against the same God who had done all that I have described and more. But somehow he could not handle big and tall men. D.A. Carson the author of the book that we're using our men's study put it this way. The whole thing was a wee bit silly. Yeah, it was. Here's what happens. Unbelief always weds itself to disobedience and blame shifting, which turns into the concrete that hardens our heart. So instead of trusting God, what did they do? They trusted the 10 spies who gave a bad report. And they fell under, the text tells us, God's judgment because of unbelief. And what was that judgment? Every person except Joshua and Caleb in that generation died in the desert. Their bones lay in that desert. But I want you to know, this unbelief that the Israelites had has a long, long tail on it. I, I, I want to examine the beginnings of the growth of that tail. I want to take us back to just when that tail began to grow. If you work your way through the book of Exodus, you'll see that only two months after God had Moses raise his staff and the Red Sea stood up with gigantic walls and the land was dry and the Israelites walked through it only two months after that event when the soldiers of the Egyptian army were all drowned. The Israelites were thirsty. And instead of saying, God, we're thirsty, we know you provided for us in many ways and many times. Would you please provide for us some water? The text tells us they grumbled against Moses, which is the same as grumbling against the Lord, and they tested the Lord. Why did you bring us out here in the desert to die of thirst? That was their mode of operation. I'll call it spiritual amnesia. It was the same old song and dance over and over and over again for 40 years. So that's the beginning. We have a 40-year tale, and I want you to know that spiritually falling away from the living God always has a long tail on it. What you see when that moment happens in a person's life is not why it happened. You're just seeing the fruit of a long history of unbelief. <clears throat> Verse 8 uses the word today. If you hear his voice which gives this command a sense of urgency. If you hear God's voice, and so what happened back in the day, well, we don't want happening to you, so listen. 
Remember Jesus' words, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they what? Follow me. Verse 8 again talks about a hard heart. Here's what a hard heart is. It is resistant to truth. It says, when I hear the word today, I will purpose in my heart to do it tomorrow. It reshapes the truth to make it into something that we like and approve of. The first step, it is the first step of developing a hard heart. Here it is, ready? You sin and you don't repent. You don't keep short accounts with God and you keep it a secret. And at that moment, unbeknownst to the vast majority of us, what happens is this thin layer like an onion lays over your heart. And you do it again and again and again. And then the tail starts to grow. To keep our hearts soft and healthy, scriptures teach us that we sin, we own it, we admit it, and we put the beautiful salve and healing balm of the gospel on it. Because every day, our hearts get harder or softer. <laughs> There's no middle ground. Verse 9 said that they tested God. And to test God is both to challenge his authority and call into question his character and integrity. It says that you are suspicious of his character. It is a demand that God prove his trustworthiness to me by my standards. For 40 years, Israel saw God's perfect faithfulness and provisions. And for 40 years, they refused to trust him. Now, let's get this straight. They were not atheists. They believed there was a God. But at the heart... They doubted that he cared. They doubted that he was reliable. And they doubted that he was trustworthy. They over and over gave God a vote of no confidence. Verse 10 tells us that this made God angry. And here's why. The most important thing in the universe is not me and it's not you and it's not humans. It is God and his glory, which is based upon his character that we sang about this morning and his reputation. God is jealous for his own glory. God is for God. Martin Luther put it this way, nothing more insulting to God to say to God, I don't trust you because you are not trustworthy. In verse 10, John Owens puts it this way. To know his ways is to know how he walks toward us and how we walk toward him. They should have known, but their hearts had drifted, the text tells us. And after drift comes deception. And then in verse 11, God gives an oath. And when God gives an oath... When God says this will happen, it happens. And he swore by his own name, they will not enter my rest. And they did not. So after we diagnose a hard heart, 
I don't know about you, but I want to know what the cure is. Because I've had a hard heart. I can get a hard heart. And I need to know what will cure it. That comes in verses 12 through 15. 12 through 15. So as we understand what Psalm 95 is saying, we should be driven here. Okay, just unpack Psalm 95. You and I should be driven to some profound conclusions that you and I cannot ignore. Because verses 12 through 15 is, is the cure for what ails us. And that's hard hearts. Paul puts it another way in 1 Corinthians 10 after describing how the Israelites put God to the test. Go read 1 Corinthians 10. Paul put it this way. Now these things happened to them, the Israelites, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. So our question this morning as we go through this text is, what is our instruction as we learn from the sin of the Israelites? It is not to be like the Israelites. But it even gets more detailed here of what you and I should do application-wise. Verse 12 and 13. Take care, brothers. Here's the cure. Lest there be any of you in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another day after day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 12, take care, be on guard, lest there be any of you with an evil or unbelieving heart. The concern for the writer of Hebrews is that there are some in this church, in this community, that are not Christians. And that's a normal New Testament concern. Acts 20. Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders. These are godly men, supposedly, who he had poured three years of his life to. He is leaving them. Read the text. He is weeping. They're weeping on each other because they're going to miss each other so much. And he tells them that after he leaves, there will be savage wolves, which mean false teachers that come in from the outside to pick off those who are uncareful, those who are not careful. And then I think he said something absolutely shocking. He looks at them and says, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples. His point is there are some who think they believe in Jesus, but they don't. And eventually they will show themselves. Verse 13, here's the cure. You read it, but exhort one another day, one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It is together is better. <laughs> it is withward with the body. Folks, Monty and I didn't make that up. As John Piper puts it, is eternal security is a community project. You and I are essential. This is what we had to get in helping each other to preserve to the end. 
This is a call to go the distance. This is a call to endure. This is Paul's words of marathon. The Christian journey is a marathon. Piper also says, those who blow this call off, and I'm going to get into the details here in a minute, because of their doctrine of eternal security are at the most danger. Here's the deal. If we are deeply connected to others, you will be known and you will be in a safe environment in which you can repent and repent often. The reformer said, always what? Repenting. But if you're a non-Christian, if you happen to think you're a Christian and you're not, and you're in a community of people who know you, there's a grand chance that you're going to realize it and come to faith in Christ. Your prayer or many Christians' prayer at seven years old to ask Jesus into your heart will be exposed, if it's real or not, by living closely to some others that know Christ in a real way. But if you're isolated, whether it's physically or whether you're there physically, but with a hiding heart, over time... In isolation, you will find yourself doing and believing and saying things that you never thought possible. <clears throat> I've seen it happen hundreds of times. Every one of these folks that would happen to, whether it in Hebrews or in real life. And you're thinking of probably people who have hit eject on the faith. At some point, years before walking away from the living God, they lived in isolation, either by not engaging the body of Christ or by isolating their own hearts and lives from the reality of what was going on. It started with isolation. It moved to apathy. It went to defensiveness. If you said something, Hey, where are you? You doing okay spiritually? I'm doing fine. Then it goes to deceit and drifting, deceit and hardness of heart. So what our writer really does here in verses 12 and 13 is he screams to us, the body of Christ is a means of grace to protect us against an evil and unbelieving heart. So the person you're around, if you're married the most, is your spouse. Your job and my job with my spouse is to speak encouraging, gospel-centered, sustaining encouragement and clarity and correction into their life and vice versa. But you can't do that if you don't know it. Your friends to come around you who do the same. Your small group. And yes, even your pastors and elders. And I want you to notice how often that's needed. Every single day. That shows how sinful we are and how easy the drift and deception takes place. To speak these truths in each other's lives, these words of encouragement, correction, care, clarity. But here's what how it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen if you just pop in here for hour 15 on Sunday. 
It doesn't happen if you just look. And I know many people have legitimate reasons to be at home. But if that's all you do in your PJs and you sit at home for hour 15, boom, and you're out and you're not engaging people, you're in danger. You will never, I will never be mature enough to not need biblical community. Never. And the disease of deceitfulness is way more violent on us than any heart attack. You and I, I want you to think of ourselves as bumper guards for each other on our journey in the wilderness. We're on a journey, and we're going to talk about in a minute. The writer of Hebrews is saying, if you are really a Christ follower, you will persevere. Now, on that journey, you may arrive at the end battered and beaten and bloody. I'm there. (laughs) But finishing. Matter of fact, why my sabbatical theme was finish strong. Because I'm on my last lap and I got a chance. And I'm as shocked by that as anybody would be. But I got a chance. So I challenge you with every fiber in my being to go down this life-giving path and living biblical community, to make it an incredibly high priority on your calendar. Matter of fact, I thought Chad's email and phone needs to be blowing up this week. I need to live in community. That's what the writer says, the curious. Next, the writer of Hebrews tells us, what's the evidence? Show me your receipts. Got any evidence of strong hearts? Verse 14. Verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Our passage, big picture, has given us a definition of what real and valid faith is, which needs to be clarified in our culture. You cannot be a Christian and live as you please for just years and years and years with no conviction from the Spirit, no biblical community, do whatever you please, when you please, how you please, and say, but God got me. I came to Christ when I was six. Because our text tells us, verse 14, the writer says, tells us what real valid faith in Jesus is. Real valid faith in Jesus perseveres. Monty put it last week, we are not saved because we persevere. We persevere because we're saved. Because as we're on this journey, and I am over here, I've already put one leg over the the bumper rail. It is the grace of the Lord Jesus that brings me back because I am truly his. So when we get to the end of the journey, we don't turn around and go, look what I did. We go, He led me there. Maybe another way to put it, the grace that saved you will sustain you. 
This is also a very common thought in the New Testament. Listen to Colossians 1.23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. 1 John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. The gospel message these Jews heard is of no value to them because they did not combine it with faith or belief, just like the Israelites. Because here's the deal about faith. It's not something you churn up so you can get blessings from God. Faith is not a religious preference. So you can put it like this, you know, you have your faith and I have my faith. Faith or belief or trust is based on the objective truth of its object. And the writer of Hebrews and all through the scripture says our object is Christ. Matter of fact, this afternoon, go read Hebrews 11. It is called the hall of faith. Every person persevered to the end despite incredible difficult circumstances whether it be beatings or death. That is the point that the writer of Hebrews is saying. These people persevered. Why did they persevere? Because they had placed their faith or trust in a Messiah that was to come, who was to be their ultimate rest, and they had not made friendship with the world. One of the worst things we can do in Western Christianity is give somebody a false assurance. Yeah, I, I came to Christ when I was whatever. And we know their life is a complete antithetical to God. Again, there's no conviction of sin. There's no repenting. There's no environment of growth. There's no evidence of progressive growth. I'm not talking about instantaneous change. I'm talking about this want to, this desire. I am failing miserably even, but I so want to learn how to follow Christ. There's nothing there. And we tend to say to them, you're good because you made that decision. The writer of Hebrews would say, no way. So here's questions for us this morning. We want to start our so what. The last point is actually our so what. And I think the writer really gives us three questions. And I'm using this so what because the writer, as you notice, uses five questions. He, in some ways, he asks a question and then answers with a question. It's a concluding summary to his argument, if you would. He's rehearsing what the Israelites did making sure there's clarity. It's writing a paper and doing a summary conclusion, if you would. Because the Israelites, we know, have been given grace to escape slavery via God's redemptive message and miracles to them. But not grace to enter the promised land, verse 19 tells us. Did you notice that? He tells us why. So we see that they were unable to enter because they had not what? Believed. Compare that with the Hebrew audience. 
they had heard the gospel message, God's redemptive message, God's revelation. And they too, the writer saying, you will not enter into his eternal rest if you've not placed your Christ trust in Christ alone. So, three questions for your so what. One, have you, are you certain that you have placed your trust in Christ alone, through faith alone, for salvation alone? It is worth being honest with yourself. Are you a Christian? If not, I, 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 I'll get with you. You email me, you call me, we'll have a great conversation. Secondly, for your so what, if you are certain you have made a decision for Christ, you have placed your trust in Christ, I want to really ask, are you living in biblical community as described here, where you are known and you know others? Because if you're not, you're in danger. And then thirdly, in light of all the Lord has done, all the faithfulness in, his, in your life that he's done. As the writer says, the great salvation he's brought you, are you trusting him? Are you trusting him? He's trustworthy. Take a minute to ask those questions.